welcome to the Endicott Podcast. Just as the sunset on Abu Dhabi, so too the Formula One season. And here to unpack it all with me is my two co-hosts, Jesse Billington and Timo Albers-Daily. How are you both? I'm very well, thank you. I quite enjoyed that that very poetic and prosaic um, introduction as well. You can do more of these. That was nice. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I'm not too bad, thank you. I enjoyed the intro as well. She's she's a natural, really. She just hides it well. We're going to go team by team analysis for this episode, starting from the bottom of the pack all at the top, working our way through the constructor standings. And we will kick off then with Williams in 10th place, Jesse. Off you go. Okay. So, Williams, this was a season that felt like it beckoned for more. And there was a lot of good to take from their performance and their design with Alex able to capitalise on it along with some unique strategy calls. Australia certainly sticks out here. The team knowing that if they could stretch out those hards for as long as possible they could have the pace on softs to not lose out in the final lap after the pit stop. It was an early glimmer of possibility and sadly little was made of it as the year rolled on. Alex's time spent in what can only be assumed to be a recalcitrant Max-oriented Red Bull as well as a subpar Toro Rosso seemed to be practical when it came to getting the most from the FW44. Typically on the tail of the points pack, sort of around that 11th, 12th place, um, Alex's performances as uh, a trim of points it was isn't to be sniffed out for certain. It's his first year with the team and first year with that style of chassis, certainly, especially coming into it again after a year out doing DTM. So yeah, he's not done too badly coming into this year. And again, one ninth position, uh, two tenths, four points, and regularly coming home 11th or 13th, not bad. Um and again, easy to judge against a teammate, Nicholas Latifi. Um, his performance was about as to be expected. He's long struggled with the truckler Williams of late, and this year was about as normal. I was really hoping to see more from him, but we didn't. Uh, moreover, we saw more from Nick DeVries in one race than we really saw from Latifi all season. Uh, quality pace and race pace to match. Um, yeah, there really wasn't much from Latifi. If anything, there really was that much more from Nick. And it's a real surprise. Grove didn't snap up the diminutive Dutchman over Logan Sargent. So we'll have to see how that pans out. Um, Latifi, of course, just scoring the one ninth place in Japan. And uh, generally speaking, I think his average finishing position was about 16.5 overall. So a long way shy of the average finishing points of Alex Albon, his teammate. I mean, the team's performances as a whole like I've said earlier, it wasn't anything special. Instead, it was a decent mix of competence and measured approaches. Hopefully they've learned a lot about the new style of car and will have the nous to carry it forwards into 2023. As much as it's fun to have an underdog, I want them to do better. It would have been nice to have some kind of 2014 vibes from them, given the new regulations where they just come from nowhere and are just back to where they belong. But uh, not yet. Maybe, maybe soon, though. I'm hoping that if nothing else, they can build up so that when 2026 rolls around, they will be ready to be back at the top. Because as much as I like the idea of Mercedes and Alpine and Ferrari battling Red Bull come 2026, I would not be against Williams just coming out and I'm back, bitches, and just completely dominating over the entire lot of them. And just like, oh my God, yes, this is what we've been after. Yeah, I mean, we definitely saw sort of glimpses of potential of that car from Alex Alban, unfortunately not so much from Latifi. I think they obviously would have done better if they I feel mean if they if they didn't have Latifi because then perhaps if they had someone like DeFries this year, then 
album would have had someone pushing him to do better and then they may they may have seen then better results from both of them i think album did do good in with the car that he had but i think there could have been i guess more if he had maybe a better teammate helping to push the team further forward so if he'd had that sort of team to teammate to either give him a slipstream or sort of battle other drivers between the two of them they could have certainly worked their way up the field it's yeah left a lot to be desired i think but i think there's a fair few teams that could be labeled with such a statement possibly also alpha towery so talking of wanting more alpha tower in the ninth place overall which if you hark back to my pre-season predictions i was expecting a lot more from this outfit and that prediction exploded in my face just terribly 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 i had a best grand prix finish of seventh all the way back at the imola grand prix not exactly a ringing endorsement for him. He only had four point finishes in 2022 as well, which is just ridiculous. All three of which were in the first half of the season, barring Imola in Spain. And then the only other race he scored points in this year was the Cota, finishing P17 in the championship, which, okay, maybe some of those other results were close to the points, but that's still no points, so doesn't really matter. And you can say that with Williams and Hess, maybe, you would forgive that more because they've been having a bit of a downturn of late. But AlphaTauri, after last year, I mean, they're on the podium in Baku. That was last year. And this year, it's just gone reverse. So it's not been great. And Yuki, uh, 2023 is going to be a make-or-break year for him, I think. Pierre Gasly as well, best Grand Prix finisher, fifth all the way back in Baku. And he seems to like that track, as we can see, because he got the podium in 2021. But again... A driver that a lot of people like and believe in and he's he's decent behind the wheel but it's interesting that he couldn't get anything out of that car either really and he finished in p14 in the championship with 23 points two points behind magnuson which no offense to him but again he's had a year at the sport he's in a house that got progressively worse as the season went on and he kind of Again, for a Red Bull sister team, you expect a lot better from them there. I've got no real standout highlights for either there. You've got five DNFs and a DNS for Yuki, and you've got three DNFs for Pierre. And then, as we say, Alfataro finishing P9 overall, with Gasly moving on to LP next year, De Freeze replacing him there. So, Helmut Marco saying that uh, whichever team is going to be, sorry, whichever driver is going to be fastest next year is going to be the one leading the team. And it doesn't show a lot of faith in Yuki, I feel like, because you'd probably put the leadership naturally in the most experienced driver of the two in F1 terms, which obviously DeFries is not that experienced. But I still think DeFries is... I'll be very surprised if Yuki outperforms him next year and it could be his last year in F1 if he's not careful. And again, AlphaTauri, like we were saying there, we just expected a lot better. I mean, you've got to look back and think AlphaTauri have had a podium in every race since 2019. 2019 Germany. Well, not every yeah, race. AlphaTauri. Every, sorry. <laughs> AlphaTauri, they had 2019 in Germany. They had Daniel Kofia on the podium, third mm-hmm. place. 2020, they had Gasly in second place in Brazil. Then obviously, Let's just forget Monza then, shall we? 2020. Well, that was 2020 as well. <laughs> you know, what year am I thinking? 
of Gasly being on the podium there. That was 2020 as well, wasn't it? Yeah. Was yeah, but you just kind of it was 2020 as well. You just glossed over. I was about over to get it. to it. I, well, I was probably going to call it 2021. I sort of skipped a year. It's been a busy day, but yeah. So two 2020, um, 2021, obviously podium in Baku, and then this year no podiums at all. So there's clearly been a somewhat downturn in the team's performance, and you'd assume over time for their drivers, especially while they're still young, able, and fit, to have been improving. But as a team, the performance, there's definitely been a drop off there. And I think it's definitely something that needs approaching and dealing with. And I know that it's one that doesn't sit well within the team, having obviously we've all, we all met my friend who works for them over the weekend. And as much as everyone anticipates being fun to work in Formula One, at the same time, you get involved with it to a passionate level. And when your passion is soured somewhat by the team you work for, it suggests that really there should be something done to improve that fortune. Yeah, they didn't really have any standout performances did they they were sort of they weren't even fighting for podiums they were fighting for the lower end of the points which at best is a real yeah which is a real drop from what we've seen these past couple of years so they have really fallen on the back foot and they've got a lot of catching up to do it's not like they had a weak power unit either. You look at the competence from the Honda power unit in that Red Bull, it was ferocious. So there's clearly something else that's gone wrong, whether it was strategy, whether it was aero design, whether it's balance across the chassis, something just wasn't there for them to be able to extract quite what another team was getting from that same power unit. And I think that's a, an interesting marker across the field as you look at how other teams have been able to utilise that power unit. And given how close Red Bull and AlphaTauri work together, with Honda to develop it, you'd assume they should be able to get a lot more from it than they seem to have done. Good news that is not AlphaTauri related, though, is that from 2021 to 20, have jumped up, which uh, was a low bar, but they managed to do it anyway. So that was good. Uh, Mick Schumacher and Kevin Magnussen returning to the team there for this year after Mr. No One Really Cares Anymore About You left the team uh, earlier this year. Uh, Mick had a best Grand Prix result of sixth in Austria, having got his first points in Formula One at Silverstone at the previous round, which some very nice battles there with Max Verstappen um, for that place, which, again, you wouldn't have thought coming in 2022 that Verstappen and Schumacher would be battling each other for legitimate points. Uh, um, 12 points in total for 2022 put Mick in P16 in the championship. As mentioned, the Silverstone battle with Max, as well as the Hamilton battle in Austria were the highlights for him along with Vettel trying to legally adopt him, because I feel like that's just a matter of time before that's formality at this point. Kevin Magnussen, though, what a comeback for, for him. And just a, a best Grand Prix result of fifth. Granted, it was at the Bahrain Grand Prix at the very beginning of the season, but to come straight out of the box after a year out to just do that, yeah, you need a little bit of luck on your side, but you also got to be there when it counts. And he was absolutely there and just must be so happy that... He was able to do that and prove that Gunter and Gene trusting him again after they'd obviously lost some faith in him to replace him as well as Grosjean at the end of 2020 wasn't misplaced this time. Uh, he also had, excuse you, he also had a further five Grand Prix point finishes and also finishing the points in every F1 sprint. Um, so this also led to him getting his and Hass's first ever pole position in his 100th Grand Prix with the team in Brazil in what is definitely one of our favourite collective moments from the season. He got 25 points in total in 2022, putting him in P13 in the championship, just 12 points behind Vettel, 
which is not something bad that you can not shake a stick at there. That's for, for a guy that's a year out in a car that he definitely outdrove at times, not too at all. Has finished P8 in the standings with 37 points, two points ahead of Alpha Tauri, which does make that look less impressive, but we'll just gloss over that slightly for their sake. But also two DNFs for Mick and four for Kevin. So it's kind of roughly the same cards were dealt to them on that front. So it's interesting how much more consistently the Haas were able to take on Red Bull's sister team and beat them. Um, we obviously know that Hulkenberg has been signed for 2023 to replace Mick, which if you look without your heart and just your head and look at the results, makes sense. And Haas and Gunter have said before that experienced drivers are more their cup of tea and they would be more willing to look back at taking on some rookies when they are more further up the table in the future in the Constructors' Championship, but they can't afford to be training wheels for anyone for the time being if they want to be successfully in there for one of the long term. And no matter how much you like make that logic does, it's not as if Hockenberg isn't a good driver because he is, and it's, again, I think it was Vessel or someone of that ilk saying the other day that you just was in the wrong cars at the wrong time and the opportunity it's kind of like Ricardo this year you couldn't they could never extract what you know is in him so it's going to be interesting to see what they can do next year and build on that um so yeah has I will say my two points that if anything support what you've said Kevin Magnussen is best Grand Prix result of fifth place in the Bahrain Grand Prix you've got to think of the cars that finished ahead of him and you think add in those two just two Mercedes and two Ferraris Two Mercedes and two Ferraris. Yeah, if you add the Red Bulls back in, even then he's only coming home seventh, which isn't a position to really be sniffed at. Alpine were pretty happy going home seventh most races. So was Lando Norris. It's a strong finishing position with a decent points haul. So, and again, obviously you've got to be in those positions. You've got to be fighting in those positions to make the most of them when they happen. It's something I know I touch on when we get to our awards ceremony at the end of this episode. Um, Yeah, you've got to be there to get them when they happen. And crucially, the thing you said about Haas not really being the right place for young drivers to go. I think we definitely learned that through 2021. And yeah, they are a small team. You have to remember that at the end of the day, they are one of the smallest sort of teams on the field. They do not have the manpower, the staffing, the history of any of the other teams that are on the field even when you look at things like Alpine you've got to bear in mind they've got roots that go back to sort of Renault and Tolman even look at things like Alfa Romeo it's Salva it's been around for a while Hassa by a long shot the youngest team on the grid 2015 16 they formed so they are a young team and they just do not have the experience as a unit to be able to develop young drivers so it makes sense for them to move back to having two slightly more experienced and established drivers in their field for 2023 so yeah, I mean, they've made some strong plays through this year. And if they're going to sort of keep going with that, I think they've got a driver lineup that they can potentially capitalise on going into 2023. It's promising stuff, I think. And Ellie May and I are definitely behind them 100% because we've been supporting them with the merchandise, so which has been uh, proven because I got you a cap for, for the Hasso 1 team. So we're doing our bit to help them out, Ellie May. Yeah, we are. I'm going to, like I've said in earlier episodes, I will buy every piece of Nico Hulkenberg merch there is. So that will maybe welcome, help Hass. fund... I got the yeah, ball rolling for you. <laughs> might help fund them a little bit, but I think the best way I think I've described Pass's season is a bit of like a U-shaped, in that they, they started on a high. Is that a happy face of, or a sad face? <laughs> a happy, a happy U. 
they started on a on a real high because no one really expected has to be doing that well in Bahrain and then kind of like most other seasons they've had they start on a high then gradually just go down the order as everyone else keeps developing and that they don't have the money to do so and then kind of they then sort of nearer to the end of the season went back up and then sort of finished on their high with Brazil being their whole position with Kevin Magnusson so they did have obviously a better year than they have in the past few years but yeah I think whilst part of me thinks that Mick Schumacher should be in F1 it makes sense what Gunter's saying that, that they need experienced drivers to help them get where they want to be. So Aston Martin, they had a pretty poor start and were on the back foot with their first points finish coming in Emilia Romagna, meaning they were the last team to score points. We then had, and I've termed it copyright gate, uh, at the Spanish GP, Aston Martin came out with side pods that looked a lot like Red Bulls and it kind of started up Aston Martin being copycats again and brought up the whole fiasco that they had in 2020 with the Mercedes brake ducks but I think this was completely different I think ultimately teams that are lower down the field are going to copy those that are at the top and it's not as simple as that you can you can't just look at a side pod as a separate entity you have to look at it as the whole car and the side pod just makes makes up one piece of how well the airflow and the aerodynamics of the car work and then the side pod also has to fit to how the car is internally structured, so the engine, the cooling system, etc. So I really don't think it was a case of copyright or any intellectual property being stolen in, in any way. I think it was just kind of, I know, people making it sort of a bigger thing than it was. Um, the main person would say they weren't smart enough to copy it properly. Wow. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't listen, but other people might be. They definitely had a better second half when of the season when they first showcased their rear wing in Hungary and then other developments started coming and it meant that they actually scored almost consistently afterwards. There were only two races where they in the second half where they didn't score and that was in Italy and Mexico with their best result coming in Singapore when they brought home 12 points with Stroll finishing in sixth and Vettelers in eighth. As a constructor, they could have gotten six if they had a better strategy, um, especially <laughs> when it, <laughs> especially when it came to you know Vettel and Abu Dhabi, he lost out on quite a few points. But I definitely think by the end of the season they were actually the sixth best team on the grid. But what hurt them was 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 how strong Alfa Romeo started the year when they picked up quite a few points when Aston Martin were really on the back foot. So I think. They have done well in their improvements from pretty much being almost the worst on the grid to then take seventh, but they still have a lot of work to do to be battling either McLaren or Alpine next year. But crucially, I think they have a lot of potential in the next few years. They've just got to unlock it. They have new infrastructure coming with their own wind tunnels. They have a host of personnel who are ex-Red Bull and Mercedes employees. So they've got to utilise the opportunity that's coming up for them. And if they don't, they're going to have Fernando and Alonso knocking on their door, telling them exactly what he thinks. So if he can, if they can nail their strategies a lot better and improve their aerodynamics, I think 
that's the two key elements that I think they're missing, then I think they could be ones to watch in the future. I think this year could be sort of the potential foundation of what would be the rise of Aston Martin. And I know Timo completely disagrees with me. <laughs> I don't. I just think you missed a third crucial element that they have got to nail completely, which they can help enormously, like you say, with their hiring of ex-personnel from other teams because Stoffel van Dorn is now with them as their reserve for next year and development driver, yada, yada, yada. Bung him in the car with Alonso. You've actually then got two drivers that can drive as opposed to just one in Alonso who can actually help you a lot. I think Aston Martin can get up there and I would, I would, I really want to support Aston Martin, but they make it difficult. And it's because they keep driving with one hand tied behind their back. And how much more excited would you be for Formula One next year if that was Vettel and Alonso teamed up with, considering how Vettel has been driving the second half of the season in particular, on top of the fact that he wasn't even in the first two Grand Prix of the season and he still outscored Stroll. And you've just got to wonder at what point, when does Stroll leave that team? Is it just when he gets bored? Because it doesn't seem to be based on results at all. And if Aston Martin and Lawrence in particular want that team to be successful, they need both drivers to be able to perform. And... It's the age-old thing I say with Jesse all the time. Yeah, you've got good drivers, but you're not in F1 because you're good. You need to be great at a minimum. And you only have a very short window to get to that point of moving from good to great. And if you're still there after that, then there's going to be a pretty obvious reason for why, and we all know what that is. Um, so I want Aston to do well. And, I th- and again, like you say, they're putting in all the resources and everything to do it, but... None of that will matter if you can't have a driver that can actually perform. And Alonso will be very interesting in there because, like you say, he's not going to take any prisoners when he's there. It's going to be like, we're doing it this way. He's going to do what we were saying on our previous episode or um, future episode, depending on which order Jesse gets this out in, about Ferrari and the management there. He's going to go in there and tell them, this is how we do it. Look, I've won more championships. I've got two more than any of you have. <laughs> and this is how we get back to that. Whereas Stroll, he got a pole position two years ago, and that's the best thing he can say about him of late. So that's my that's my two cents. We don't, we don't need to go back into my Aston Martin ramblings because it's not changed, but I want to really support them, but they make it tricky. And if you've bought me anything on Stroll related for Secret Center, I've just realised I genuinely would prefer Verstappen. That is how bad this is. <laughs> I haven't got you anything straw-related. Oh, thank God for that. There is a God after all. See, I don't have anything to add to what Ellie Mae said about Aston Martin. There is a lot of potential lining up in that team, and I definitely think that what Timo says with regards to Stoffel van Dorn being on their roster is an interesting one. Obviously, we've seen Stoffel and Alonso together before 20, I want to say 17, 18 at McLaren. I think I'm correct in saying yeah. that. 18, I think, yeah. I'm trying to remember when Jensen retired. It was aimed at 16, yeah, 17, 18, yeah. Yeah, 17, 18. And so we've seen them together as a roster before in a very uncompetitive McLaren, but both of them were able to extract something from that car. So potentially swapping Lance Stroll for Stoffel van Dorn, as strange as it might sound, getting rid of the boss's son, all of a sudden could be the thing that they need as a turnaround. Putting Roscoe in there would be easier. Putting me in there would be easier. You might want to just widen it a bit. I'm carrying a bit of winter weight at the moment, but yeah, I reckon you could sort of just about squeeze me in there. Not that much taller than Espan Ocon. He's fitted in a team, a chassis from that team before. It's fine. I'll stop talking now and start talking about something completely different. Uh, moving one step further up the team's rankings to Alfa Romeo. Um, 
Okay, this was a season that started off so well and petered out towards its end, but that's no bad thing. The effect is exaggerated a bit by other teams around them developing up to their level. Aston Martin's progress really shows this. Um, we'll pick on the new boy first, Zhou Guanyu, who didn't have a rough start to their career in F1, really. Opening up with points in their first race off a Q2 appearance, it was a high bar to have to keep crossing. But one in keeping with the strong performances he had laid down the year prior in F2 and the F3 Asian champs, where he had dominated some interesting F2 names early on in that latter series and would then go on to show them up in his final year in the feeder series. So his performances, while a bit under the radar then, uh, were retrospectively quite a stellar showing. So they carried them forward quite neatly into his Formula One career as it started off and progressed well from Bahrain with strong performances and more Q2 appearances through Miami and Spain. Um, No, Miami and Spain, though, were hampered with reliability issues from the Ferrari Power Unit, rather. Um, We could have seen a bit more from him in that regard. But again, you're hamstrung by the power unit there's nothing you can do in that regard aside from swap to a different team that doesn't have a ferrari engine in it but this is a boy that did have a ferrari driver academy role at one point in time so it's not wholly surprising that despite being at one point tied to alpine he ended up in something with a prancing horse on the engine the same engine problems would see him retire in baku but spurred on canada proved to be a fortunate hunting ground for the young driver with his maiden q3 appearance and a p8 to cap it off bagging four points for his efforts silverstone saw another brilliant qualifying in the pouring rain from joe but sadly for now as he ended up in the catch fencing at abbey after a big shunt involving george russell on lap one a pattern would emerge from here for the british driver again a herculean return a week later saw him back in the car for the rest of the season he kept up with the midfield while his reliability let him and uh, he fought well with some of the very talented drivers that crop up in that midfield Sebastian Vettel Fernando Alonso he was regularly dicing with big names essentially fighting against six world championships in a car that at the best of times had one hand behind its back and yeah he proved to be a good teammate to Bottas who turned out to be the calm and directed influence Joe needed as he started out in the sport Bottas was neither overbearing nor pressuring as a teammate if anything he was quite confidence inspiring a key element to this was when Joe was struggling to get past a slow moving Latifi in Brazil Bottas came on the radio to coach his rookie garage mate and help him pass while his championship challenging days are by and large behind him Bottas's acceptance of his role and continued enjoyment of the sport are turning him into a much-loved character in the field and that's not to say he's a doddle to fight on track his Imola showing was really one that shows that when the strategy and reliability is there he can still hustle it with the front of the midfield and really take the fights to the McLarens and the Alpines up the top end while he's no longer one to watch for a championship he's certainly one to watch for some tasty battles too bad TV direction is so shoddy we're unlikely to see it though as a whole, Alfa Romeo's performance as a team has been a little like that of Williams. Nothing hugely offensive nor shockingly brilliant. It's been measured and sort of metered in their approach, and it's earned them a surprising haul of points, enough to bag sixth in the championships and some much-needed cash. Hopefully this inspires them on into the new year and we'll see a competitive evolution of the C42. I want to put a point up because I should have mentioned this on our news episode, but I'm sure both of you have seen this, but... Bottas has a mullet. Bottas has a mullet now. Bottas does have a mullet. It's the, yeah. Jesse's already broken up with his girlfriend in attempts to go after Bottas because he wants them all to himself. That's how serious this is. The cat's come back into Ellie May's thing because it heard about about the mullet and wants to know everything about it. Wants Ellie May to shave it so it's got a mullet itself. It's a big deal. Everyone wants a mullet these days. I'm not going for it. I've got too much 
good stuff going on at the front. I've got two stronger hairlines to support a mullet. But I think the other important thing talking about Alfa Romeo is, of course, we know Alfa Romeo are backing out of the sport, but also Audi have already released their livery for their 2026 car. I think that's the year they're coming. If that's what they're keeping at Aris, then that's just meh. It's a bit pants. It's a bit e-racing. It's a bit boring. Yeah, not very inspired. Do something more exciting, Audi. But anyway, yeah. Anyone else got anything to throw in on Alfa Romeo while we're at it? They're kind of I... just slow and steady wins the race. They're kind of they're making they're kind of just there in the background doing roughly what they need. And if they had a better engine this year, they could have been a proper threat up there with Alpine and McLaren, I think. Mm. And it's just because Bottas had something stupid like eight Grand Prix in a row where he just did not get any points, and it was just every review episode I was. <laughs> Like Bottas has gone this many races without scoring a point, and then this many races. Like, oh my god, can you stop not finishing races so that I can stop saying this? I don't enjoy doing this. It's just a fun statistic that keeps building. Um, not yeah. so for him, but for me. Um, Bottas was yeah. the most retired driver across the season, alongside Carlos Sainz and Fernando Alonso of all people. But yeah, two of those drivers retiring with more of the not mechanical maladies caused by the engine in the back of their car. It's if anything, it's quite inspiring to see Audi coming in and potentially shaking up things. You could be in for a good time if you're sticking around at Alfa Romeo for that long. Which, if you're whether or not we see Bottas or Joe staying there for that long and still being there in 2026 is another matter entirely. But the team itself should be in a good shape by then if they keep building up like they have been. It could be if they keep doing what they're doing, maybe 25. Maybe what we're going to say, maybe not 26, but 2025. If that's kind of the 2021 of the regulations, they could be fighting for that third place in the championship at the very least. Yeah, some more evolutions of the aerodynamics that they've shown they've clearly got a grasp of for this style of car could prove to be really sort of problematic for teams further up the field. And yeah, if you're McLaren, as much as you want to be looking ahead to tackle Alpine, you really need to be looking over your shoulder a little bit in case Alfa Romeo come out of the gates next year with a stormer of a chassis. Yes, so McLaren... They nice. weren't in a... <laughs> I've been very diplomatic. I hope. Anyway, McLaren, they weren't really in a great position at the start of the year. They were plagued with brake issues, limiting their testing, as well as Daniel Ricciardo contracting coronavirus and missing testing altogether in Bahrain. At the start of the season, we kind of excused the lack of performance by Daniel Ricciardo as he had missed out on driving essentially a brand new type of car and the McLaren really hated the slow speed corners of Bahrain and but then a few races in Ricardo started showing pace getting sixth in Australia and we thought great he's back and then after that it just kind of fell apart for him I still really don't know why he didn't click with that car and I don't think he knows either I don't think it was all down to him not being able to drive that car all that well as McLaren also messed up for instance we've got monaco where they got his ride height wrong and japan they messed up his strategy completely meaning he went from being in the a point scoring position and above lando norris to be to then be completely out of the points so i think whilst ricardo's driving wasn't like the drives we're used to seeing from him this and this was a bad season i think there is a portion of blame to be had on mclaren and then you've got the other side of the garage, which it really was a garage of two halves, as whilst Ricardo wasn't doing all that well, Lando did a pretty sub, superb job in getting the most of that out of that McLaren, and he was the only driver outside of the top three to get a podium, which came in Imola. 
he scored 122 points out of McLaren's 159, which is just over three quarters of McLaren's points, which means that Danny Rick scored less than a quarter of them. So Lando really was the glue that kept McLaren together and in that fight with Alpine. Could McLaren have been Alpine? I'm really in two minds about this. I think if we had Red Bull Danny Rick, or even Danny Rick that we've got in Australia, Singapore and Mexico, then perhaps. Lando's average race was 7.8. So either a 7th or an 8th points position, which... So the real point score that helped Lando was Imola, which I'm not trying to disregard that from him, but I do think McLaren did have the fifth best car. So I think it's about right, but ultimately this isn't where McLaren should be considering their last year. They were fighting for third in the championship. So overall, I don't really think this was a great season for McLaren, and that's not even including how they dealt with Oscar Piastri and the Mercado situation. I think definitely the Oscar Piastri Daniel Ricciardo contract gate has been almost certainly on this podcast discussed to death, and I know on pretty much every other one, a lot of other podcasts have definitely spoken about it. So there's no need to re-talk about it. But yeah, you've you've covered every point with McLaren there. It, there's been so many failings across the board from them, both in their driver management, their aero design, the fact that coming into the season they were on the back foot because Danny Rick hadn't been there for part two of testing. It was just. There were so many errors along the process that it it meant they were constantly fighting an uphill battle. And I think Alpine seized that as an opportunity and really sort of drove home the advantage, which was a great of Alpine. I love them, love them dearly, and I'm really going to love them next year with their lineup. But I think this year, really, they put a stamp of authority over McLaren and said, look, if you want to start fighting for positions, we're going to fight you for positions. And we mean that whatever that translates to in French. I will just add, purely to annoy Ellie Mae, F1 have literally just come out with average finishing positions and Lando Norris, 7.75, actually. She rounded up to one decimal place. It's fine. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, I also... Whereas Ricardo 11.58, just for, for the fun of that. I did do those maths on a Monday evening, I have to say, so... She's within point one of a decimal place, which within physics is counted as a technical impossibility because you don't get point five of a place in Formula One. You get point five of a point, but not point five. Anyway, please move on to Alpine before he goes into physics. Yes, Alpine. I firstly, I will admit, Ocon is an underrated driver and is slept on a little. And I myself will put my hands up and say I have because I can't really think of any standout performance by him but he has been incredibly consistent for the team in terms of his performances. He wasn't plagued with the reliability issues that Fernando had, but Alpine could nine times out of 10 rely on him coming home in points and trying to keep them above McLaren in the championship, which he ultimately really helped them do. But speaking of reliability issues, six DNFs for Alonso. In the races that he finished, there were only two races where he was out of the points which was Australia and Miami. So he had huge consistency and there was so much potential that we just didn't get to see. Out of those six DNFs, five of them were reliability issues. The only other one was he was tagged by a spinning Mick Schumacher in, I think it was Imola, causing a part of his side pod to fly off down the straight and losing a hell of a lot of downforce. So they just retired him because there's no point in him being there. Alonso said that 
he lost about 60 plus points. But I'm not sure if that was as a team or just him. But if you take his average drive, which works out to be eight, and that was again math on a Monday evening. So, Timo, if you want to correct me at all. Um, no, no, I'll let you go. I'll let you have it. <laughs> it means that if you take those eight places, for instance, he lost about 20 points this season due to reliability alone. Um, but that's obviously a mathematical average. I haven't taken into account where he was in those races and how much he would have lost, but I don't think it is 60 points. But even with just those 20, he would have been Ocon to eighth in the championship. I think fourth really is the best result they could have wished for. I think they had one of the best driver lineups as they had two very reliable drivers that consistently got them points. They didn't have a good enough car to battle Mercedes in third, but if they can get their reliability sorted, then they do have a good car with a great straight line speed. So it will definitely be interesting to see, I guess, what happens next year with their driver lineup of Ocon and Gasly. I think, like I was saying with Alfa Tauri earlier, it's going to be interesting to see what Gasly can do there because we know the car is good with them and that they're going to keep building on that. And he's a driver that a lot of people... I feel like he's very mustard for the people at the moment. You either really, really back him or you really don't. There's not a lot of people going, eh, with Ocon. Or not Ocon, sorry, with Gasly. And Ocon as well is a bit like that, actually, with that... He's there and he's reliable and he's bringing points in. But when it came to the races, you'd always be looking at Alonso and you'd be wondering about what's he going to do? What can he do out of it? And you never really thought that about Ocon. You're like, okay, he'll he'll do all right, but he's never going to. And it's weird because he's he's the one of the two of them last year. He won a race for them. Alonso could only get on the podium. And yet you wonder, would he have been able to do that were it not for Alonso's help with the defensive stuff as well? So it's it's interesting how... The statistics only tell so much there, and yet when it comes to race day, you're like, yeah, but Alonso though, we'll but we'll better watch out for Alonso. Um, so next year as well, it's going to be interesting to see what happens there with with those two, and if there's going, to, I don't know who would be a natural team leader out of the two of them because it should be Ocon because he's been there the longest, but at the same time he. Again, maybe Max in Brazil a couple of years ago, just, he doesn't seem aggressive enough. Um, to kind of take charge. So it's going to be, and I, I don't think he's ever really been in that position because Ricardo, before Alonso got there, Ricardo was definitely the one in charge of that. And then it was Perez as well. And Perez was always kind of in charge of him. So it's going to be very interesting dynamic, I think. So it's, again, I agree that fourth is probably the best they could hope for. And to hark back to McLaren as my last point, I don't know if it was a matter of Alpine one fourth or McLaren lost it. And it's probably a healthy bit of both. Oddly enough, I agree with Timo on what he said there, especially the idea of oh, McLaren. Yeah. I know, strange times. Um, on McLaren losing fourth as opposed to Alpine winning fourth. And that's coming from someone who really likes Alpine and genuinely like, is a bit of a knock-on, especially is also a Gasly fan. I think with the point of who's going to be the sort of lead driver, I don't think either of them will be. I think this is going to be an interesting dynamic to watch out for. <laughs> just squeezes himself at the current not necessarily in the car but he's going to be leading the team and I think because you're going to have this very neutral or balanced driver dynamic it's going to lead to just now picturing Brad and Otmar Saf now squeezing into the two cars trying to race around the track of each of the top half of the body just sticking out of the cockpit the worst muffins just dodging but in F1 cars Um, don't be so rude Um, anyway um, (laughs) 
what was I saying? That was it. I was going to say, Otmo Zafnel, I think, is going to become very much a key figure within Alpine because he's going to be the one that leads things. He's going to ask for things from his drivers, but he's not necessarily going to ask his drivers to lead. And it's going to be an interesting choice of management style, but I think it's one that Otmar definitely has the sort of iron fist and strength of will to lead. And I think he is the ideal person to lead that driver lineup. I think that's why they can almost get away with not having a driver that's clearly the lead driver. They can get away with not having a Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen, a Sebastian Vettel, a Fernando Alonso in the team, if you've got the strong will of Otmar Zafnau at the front of it. I will say two last points then. One of which being, I wonder, with that in mind, because I can agree on that one, it'd be interesting to see how much that then develops. But then come 2025, again, if we take it, this would be a combination of regulations and it's kind of a chance to really go for it. If they decide to keep whoever they have from 24 over to 25, or if they decide to go completely new, but they go with some top-tier drivers... And kind of like your Vettel Alonso kind of caliber driver, whoever that might be by that point. And to see like, okay, we know we can build and develop this car to a certain extent up to this point, but if we want to really go for a championship draft and we don't know if that could happen in 26 with the regulations straight away, if we don't want to have to wait a few years, maybe they have one year of like, Sebastian, do you want to just see if you can get another title and we'll just have a one year make or break thing and just go for it because... Again, like, we, like I was saying, you're always looking this year at Alonso rather than Ocon during the race to see if either one of the two of them is going to get that extra bit of oomph out of it. It's going to be him. And I also wonder about Otmar. Is he going to turn to a bit like Gunter when it was Roman and Kevin at Haas and he's just going to slowly get angrier and angrier at them because that could be quite some fun stuff. So I feel like Otmar's born for Drive to Survive. So I feel like we could get some premium Otmar content for, for Drive to Survive 2024. There'll definitely be some premium Otmar content, and I definitely think it'll be hard to sort of make a decision between the two drivers. But again, it's one of those things that's quite different to the way we see with other Formula One teams, is it's which means that it's quite difficult to also predict quite who's going to come out on top from that situation. So it's beneficial as a fan in that regard because it's going to be something interesting to keep an eye on. I think the whole reason everyone focuses on Blonzo through the races is because, well, it that's who he is. It's Fernando Alonso, a driver known for making some pretty impressive and audacious racing moves or decisions both on and off the track, especially when it comes to the like of blackmailing Ron Dennis around Spygate. He's a driver that has no limit or has no sort of upper boundaries as to what they're willing to do, willing to try or how hard they're willing to defend. He was an eye-catching driver, a, a showpiece, a talent showcase, the thing you looked at. He was, in the words of every person who does pickpocketing, he's the distraction while Esteban Ocon steals your wallet. He's well, also pretty note. vocal on the uh, <laughs> radio as well, I think, which helps Fernando Alonso stay relevant. Yes, yeah. Fernando Alonso is somehow a driver worthy of the drive to survive era he's been hanging out with kimmy too much for team radio purposes maybe that's why he came back mercedes then third place in the constructors championship which is a weird weird thing to say considering the last 63 years of dominance by them um lewis hamilton as well not his best year 
definitely not his best year, arguably his worst year, because it was ever in Formula One. He had a best Grand Prix finish of second, which he achieved multiple times, France, Hungary, Cota, Mexico, and Brazil. But it did put him down in P6 in the championship overall with 240 points. In the end, just six behind signs, which one wonders Abu Dhabi and a couple of the races like that. Uh, Imola in particular, I'm thinking of, that's quite a, a pain for both of them as well, because again, Science Austria is the noticeable uh, lack of points for him. So it was a very close battle between those two, which if you had told us that at the beginning of the season, we'd have been quite excited about that because we'd assumed it would be for first place. Uh, the fact it was over fifth and sixth is a little unfortunate. Uh, but yeah, largely down to the car and him taking on experimental new parts for it. And uh, I think in some ways, though, it was also a really good year for him because there was no pressure for him to to come back. At, like If the car had been there, there would have been that pressure and it would have been... I don't know if it would have been worse if Max had still beaten him then or not, but it would not have been good. It would just have been a degree of badness whereas this year he could kind of really just go back to basics in a way I mean we saw him take the the, the yellow helmet which he hasn't had since 2013 so really there's all these little things where you can tell he's having a mental reset to be like right we need to start this again and figure out where we're going wrong so that we can build up to that and that takes a certain definitely takes a certain caliber of driver to do that because you know if if that's someone sort of like we were just saying with Alpine, if he was in that position, he would not have reacted quite so calmly. And the same with Vettel, we saw that in Ferrari, just gradually more and more frustration with them. Um, and I mean, Silverstone, Cota and Brazil were the standout moments for him across the season. Silverstone in particular, just because if ever there was a time to prove that the crowd gives you an extra couple of tenths around a track, it is definitely watching him perform at Silverstone. And it was... A shame that he couldn't have won that race. It was a shame he couldn't have won USA and Brazil as well. But Silverstone, it just felt like if ever there was going to be one where you get a you get a Budapest of 2021 kind of or a Monza most years kind of race, it would have been that this year. And again, that the overtaking particular was we all know which overtake I'm talking about, so I don't need to be more specific there. It was just sublime to watch, regardless of if you're a fan of him or not, because you're just kind of edge of your seat, edge of your seat stuff and after what was definitely a tricky first half of the season for him, it was nice to see that it's not like we've seen with Daniel Ricciardo or Sebastian Vettel early doors, and then they can't recover. There is still that hunger for it, and I think, if anything, that has probably made him more dangerous for, for next year and when he does extend his contract with Mercedes, because Toto seems determined to think he, he will, and I don't see why he wouldn't either. He's still got a good few years left of the tank, and... This isn't going to deter him, if anything. It's going to be, like Toto was saying, on Beyond the Grid, when Nicky uh, Lauda was still around. And thing, and the rare times things were bad back then. That just made Lauda more happy and more excited because they've got more of a challenge on their hands and makes it even more satisfying than when you do come back and win. Um, tale of two halves, though, as Ali May was saying for McLaren, the same for Mercedes, because George Russell had an absolutely barnstormer of a season for his first season at a top team. No offence, Williams. Um top five finish at 19 of the 22 Grand Prix, which is just silly, but in a really good way for, especially with that car, it really does show that the consistency there, I mean, we've said this particularly in F2 and F3, Jesse, that consistency is key if you want to succeed. And he was mathematically in for a chance, still going into Abu Dhabi, of getting P2 in the championship against Red Bull and Ferrari. And that's, that is pretty impressive. And even Eddie Mays, unfortunately, 
nodding her head at that. She can't even disagree with that one. That's how bad it is. Um, he obviously got the win in Brazil as well, which he I mean, so well deserved as well after Sakia was brutally taken away from him with Mercedes woes there. And again, Mercedes won two. They're their first and only one-two of the season, but still tied with Ferrari on number of one-two finishes, which shows how much they improved or how badly Ferrari did. Depends on which side of the coin you're at. Um, but yeah, finished P4 in the standings overall for him with 275 points. Mercedes finishing P3 in the standings with 515 points. And they're obviously same drivers for next year. And Singapore for George... I'm not going to count Silverstone because he didn't even get the chance to race there, really. And Imola for those were the result, worst results for them, excluding one DNF apiece. So for Abu Dhabi and Silverstone, respectively. Definitely what Lee McKenzie used to say to Sebastian Vettel during his 24 season at Red Bull, a character-building year for them. But I don't think any of us are going to be underestimating them coming into next year or doubting that if any team is going to come back and launch a successful campaign, it's going to be them. I think in terms of Lewis Hamilton, I actually think this was a really, it was a really good thing that Mercedes weren't in championship fighting contention because it was just a year that he could reset, fully re enjoy racing again and not have any stress on him really. I mean, He's been kind of vocal in saying how much he has really hated this car. But at the same time, if you look back on your career and say that your worst um, finish at the end of a season is sixth? Fifth. Fifth. Sixth, yeah, sorry. Sixth. Then that's still pretty good going. Kevin Magnussen wanting that so, so badly. <laughs> And I think this year, now that they've been able to reset, they can come back stronger next year. And they're going to win probably, if they do end up in being in championship fighting contention, they're going to enjoy it more just for where they've had to really fight it due to being on the back foot this year. Yeah, I I don't have anything to say on top of that that isn't really going to be echoing what you've already said. I definitely think Lewis having... Not necessarily a bum year, but a, a less competitive chassis has definitely given him a good chance to sort of get in that mental space and reset and sort of also simply shed the pressure, I think, as well. When you think about it, if he had come into this season with a highly competitive car, everyone would have been expecting him to go straight back in against Max Verstappen. And after 2021, I don't think that would have been what he wanted or crucially needed. So, yeah, it's been a a blessing in disguise almost in a way as brutal as it's been and as much of a learning curve as it's been at the same time it's a sport where you're always going to be learning and I think Lewis will have almost certainly taken that on board he will have learned a hell of a lot from this year and been able to carry that forward so it's yeah it's one of those sort of blessing in disguises years for him and yeah for George the absolute perfect season you'd need if you're starting out at a top team it is yeah a year that he will look back on quite happily going into it and going that was the year I cemented myself at a top team came through and sort of had a pole position won a sprint race won a Grand Prix had podiums across the year it was yeah a year to put in the record books for George Russell but I know Lewis Hamilton is smart enough to also put this year in the record books for both the right and wrong reasons 
saying, so just to echo the two of you there, I think it proves that as well as perfect motivation for both of them, because if he'd won the title in 21, he'd have had eight titles. He could have retired there and then been done with it. But now he's got that perfect last, in quotation marks, excuse to go for that record. And George on the opposite side of it has that perfect foundation, like you say, to I can go and learn as much as I can from Lewis when and so that even when you seem to have everything going your way, there's still a bit more you can gain from that and there's still more motivation you can find from somewhere. And then having a bad year might be the the, the worst thing for the likes of Red Bull and Ferrari moving forwards. Speaking of moving forwards, especially as Ferrari, that moves us on to second in the constructor standings and Ferrari, yeah. Um, an abominable season of what could have been. This was truly a what-not-to-do learning curve for the Scuderia as well as uh, those around them. Nonetheless, their performance is here to be graded and we'll start with their golden boy. Charles Leclerc had it all coming into Imola and yet coming out of it, things weren't looking so rosy. Then a brace of races later, his hands were no longer on the title. Short of perhaps France, there really weren't many faults with um, that stem from him. As much as he tried to battle Max this season, which he proved on lap-for-lap pace he could, especially looking at his qualifying results. In the race, when the odds stacked against him with poor tyre degradation and Ferrari's painful strategies, there was too much to overcome. And this was something that would echo across the Ferrari garages with his teammate Carlos also suffering much the same issues. Looking at his span of results, he never finished outside the points. The only pointless occasions came when he didn't finish the race. Azerbaijan and Spain, both caused by power unit issues in France. Well, the less said about that, the better. It's still unclear if the car snapped on him with a hydraulic failure or if he simply pushed it too hard. Either way, that one incident forms just 33% of his retirements this season, which is not a bad stat to have, but certainly not the one he would have wanted. Carlos Sainz's season largely mirrors that of his teammate, both battling a car that, as brilliant as it looked in the opening round, was equally Italian in its nature, blowing hot and cold from race to race, and in the case of Austria for the Spaniard, very hot. While Australia can be largely attributed to Sainz's error, Imola wasn't, and it set back his championship run significantly. Treacherous conditions in Japan caught him out, although these were likely to get anyone, so no surprise it got essentially the unluckiest driver in the field, while Kota offered little chance for redemption, torpedoed off the line by Russell engaging his now signature move. Had it not been for Imola and Kota, at least Sainz would have likely had fourth place over the young Brit, and 2023 holds a lot of promise for him moving forwards, but with Leclerc seemingly gearing up for a big push, and a new team principal on the horizon, he might have more on his plate to battle in the new year than he really wants. However, when it comes to Ferrari's performance as a team, beyond its drivers, it's easy to just say they were apocalyptically shit and move on, but that's reductive and hardly the constructive feedback their no-blame system needs at this point in time. It looked good early on, possibly too good. 2019 masked just how bad things were. Peter and the constructors looked all right for the new boy Binotto, but Red Bull had been juggling drivers behind the scenes. So while Max beat both Scuderia drivers, as a team, the horse topped the bull. A spicy engine also gave them a competitive edge in a season where Vettel was still driven to try and win that elusive F1 title with the iconic team. 2020 showed more accurately the real state of affairs. The down-on-power engine revealed the true flaws with the chassis. With just three podium finishes to their name, the disorganised and badly communicating team came home sixth in the standings, their worst results since 1980. 2021 saw a slight upturn in faith, though now they stood third and had two teams to try and beat. 
2022 hammered home the fact that while Ferrari could build a decent car, they still struggled with management, something that had likely been a rumbling issue since Binotto's appointment. Poor pit strategy failed to keep pace with the likes of Hannah Schmitz on the Red Bull pit wall, while development of the car seemed stagnant and slow as though they simply built a car for testing in Spain, realised it wasn't terrible and called it a day. Under previous management, Bonotto had been a powerhouse of engineering and drive. His tenure as principal, though, we have sadly seen, has proven to be a step too far. Hopefully Ferrari as a whole can learn something from this, that while moving people up through the ranks is a brilliant way of instilling a passion in a team as well as retaining a familiarity in a unit, it needs to be the right person, and sometimes that person can come from outside the sport. Ferrari's own Maurizio Rivabene springs to mind, as does the namesake of our group chat, Flavio Briatore. Both stepped into the role having had histories beyond motorsport. Tifosi favourite Jean Todd proved that even coming to the role from a different motorsport was a viable and bountiful move. Hopefully Ferrari, with a new vision that moves firmly away from its no-blame culture, looks back on 2022 as its greatest failure of recent times. As bad as 2020 was... 2022 was worse. This was the year they had all the correct tools and people, but squandered it because no one person wanted to stand up for the cause they believed in. Apart from that, they did great. Yeah, apart from that absolute stellar season, won the opening round with a 1-2 finish, what more do you want from them? They sort of packed up and checked out the season from there on out, really, it seems. Do you think that the poor performance in engine of 2020 and 2021 for Ferrari made us sort of not look at their strategy and other sort of issues that were there but we just didn't see because we were more focused on their lack of pace and it's just carried on until this year where they've finally got the good car and then it's been like oh wait we forgot about everything else. Every year there was either something to distract from a main problem or everything else was correct and then we realised what a problem was lying underneath. And yeah, like you said, this year when they had the pace in a fairly decent chassis, all of a sudden we realised the one thing that was missing from the team was their strategy. And you're sort of going, ah. Whereas when you look at 2020, you're going, okay, perhaps there's not too many other problems here, but the main thing that's missing is pace from the engine. So each year they've had one key element missing, but then as they go to put that in, it forces out another element of the team that they might well have gotten correct. And it's infuriating because you're looking at a team that by all accounts and by all history should be able to put together a winning team, but they haven't done that since 2007. And you're looking at it and going, what's gone so cataclysmically wrong since that point in time and the answer is one thing each season seems to be their undoing and yeah to this date they haven't realized what that one thing was and it does very much feel like the uh, two and a half men meme of uh, i feel like i'm forgetting something what is it i don't know well that's probably not important then and then it switches to the kid outside in the rain waiting for them to come and collect him it's like yeah, uh, and yes, that kid but that outside just keeps changing. The kid just keeps changing. They keep forget remembering it, and then they forget something else. Yeah, and they remember the kid one day, but forget something else completely important the next day. Like they remember, oh, we need to do a pit stop this race. We need tires to do the pit stop. Ah, bugger, see Zandvoort for Carlos Sainz, and it's just an ongoing case of troubleshooting from a team that really, at this point in their career, should not be troubleshooting. Yes, we're into a new season, but no other team has had as many cataclysmic failures of structure, of organisation, of performance 
than Ferrari. And I think the problem is because everyone puts Ferrari on such a high prancing horse, they have such a long way to fall when it goes wrong. And that's where some of the issues lie is potentially Ferrari rests on their laurels too much and they go, oh, yeah, well, we're Ferrari. It's fine. No, you're Ferrari. You should be doing better. I think that's the that's the key element there. Just pain, isn't it? Yeah, it's just pain. <laughs> Yet still going into the next season. I love the idea in the editing you just delete all of what you've just said, Jesse. We just have early May of just, just pain in it. Just move swiftly onto that's, it. That's how we cut it for the TikTok, is we just go, so Ferrari in 2022, Ellie May, it's just pain in it. And then we move on. One million likes. <laughs> it's relatable content, that's what the people want. I suppose we move on at this point to the team at the top of the standings. We've all talked about three teams each, and this is possibly the easiest team to talk about because there's not been any major problems. There's not been any failures from within the team. Although, Timo, you've immediately put your hand up with some sort of questioning face. Well, Ellie May, can, I can already tell she knows what I'm going to point out about. Maybe not a catastrophic failure, but certainly there is a seed that has been planted for 2023 in the form of Brazil, the final few laps of the Grand Prix there. And, I mean, if you want to know my my thoughts, because they haven't changed at all, go back to the Brazilian Grand Prix review episode where I talk about it in lengthy detail. And it's just... Nicky Lauda did say to Total Wolf that winning is easy. And maybe this most dominant of years for them could prove to be their undoing because it's been so long for them since they've been in this position, especially to get both titles in one year. Perez and Verstappen, it could, it does, it seems to be echoing slightly and has a lot of potential for Weber. Weber. I've just shipped them. Weber and Vettel for, from years gone by. And uh, whilst it's very good this year, I don't know. Maybe we don't. Maybe that's as, maybe this is the high point. Maybe I'm being too optimistic, but for all the good stuff that's come with them, they had a very unnecessary bit of drama that could impact them a lot. It's going to have repercussions moving forwards, but if this was Ferrari, we'd have our ongoing doubts. This is Red Bull. I think they've probably got a fairly strong handle on it. And as much as they, they all season long, let's not forget, battled cost cap and cost cap and, and the Red Bull catering department. That whole scandal, they seem to sort of shrugged off. With, I think that was just Yuki just sneaking into Red Bull because we know how much that boy likes to eat. He likes food. He likes his mushy peas. We saw that. I know that from Drive to Survive. But the fact of the matter is that there's... They're Teflon. You can throw anything at them and it won't stick. And it's fantastic. And I think it as a team, that's almost what you want to be. You want to be insurmountable, unchallengeable, unflappable and Red Bull have proven that you can be that and you can do that. It takes a lot of hard work and preparation and dedication and putting the right people in the right places at the right times. Don't get me wrong, you do not become a Teflon team overnight. But Red Bull have achieved that and it's something that's worth remembering. But I think that they started off with that in the early years, fine. In 2010, 2013, great. Then Ricardo and Vettel obviously then showed that when you have two drivers that are level, that you're going to have some issues. And they never really recovered from that until they looked outside their own system with Perez. And whilst obviously Perez is not on the same level as Max, if he wants to, he can make life very difficult for Max. And after two solid years of helping him, 
there is the potential for wanting that to be switched and it is not an unreasonable thing for Perez to be asking, especially if it's not necessarily to go for a championship, but at least to stay in the fight longer, get some crucial wins at some places he would like to do where he hasn't had that before and all these kinds of things. So I think whilst, yes, it's not an overnight thing to become a Teflon team, it is probably very easy to unbecome one. And they need to handle that very carefully because if you think about 2015 to 2021, before 2021 started, I'm, I'm saying here, they had very topsy-turvy stuff going on within that team where it's like, yeah, you might have a good car and you have good drivers, but you're not handling all of it correctly. And it seemed a little bit Ferrari-esque in that sense from this year. You had all the right ingredients, but you couldn't make the envelope. That's definitely true. And it will be interesting looking at this thing. I think that's the problem is to go alongside Max Verstappen and perform alongside Max Verstappen to be the team that you need, you need a driver that can compete against him. But a driver that can compete against him is also going to want to win every now and then. And managing that driver's expectations is tricky. Your other solution is get a driver that's not as good, but then at the same time, you you end up with a driver that's not as good, and that's a struggle when it comes to the team performance. You, You end up with your Pierre Gasly's, your Alex Albon's, all of a sudden that's not where you want to be either so you're stuck between a rock and a hard place of get competent driver competent driver wants to win ah get incompetent driver we don't win teams championship but no one challenges max so max happy and you you spend a lot of time putting out small fires and that can quite quickly become a problem because eventually you run out of water in the fire extinguisher and one of those small fires gets big i think perez could be about to be one of those small fires that you can't quite put out and he's had a taste of what that red bull can do and obviously we know that having a taste of what a competitive red bull can do does make you stick around a fair amount let's not forget daniel ricardo has returned to the fold perez but if he gets going... if, if he replaces perez for 24 if it does go tips up then Max and Red Bull got to be silly to think that that's going to result in a calm Daniel Ricciardo that's not going to challenge. Yeah, you'd you'd be blind to not do that. And again, if you were to put Daniel Ricciardo in that seat, it's the same. You'd be in exactly the same position as you are now with Perez, is a driver that has sort of bitten the apple from the forbidden tree, and all of a sudden, so for the just French how Ricciardo is the only driver to have beaten Max in the same car as him. Yes. Yeah, and he beat Vettel the year before it as well. Yeah, he is a he is a good driver, but the the, the element is that they they've tasted the forbidden fruit and they're going to want more of it. And as a team, how do you regulate those expectations and balance it out? It's going to be tricky, but that's their twenty twenty three performance. And if we're judging them purely on their twenty twenty two performance, oh yeah, then they tef- do perfectly yeah, fine. Teflon but, team. You know, there's there's, there's bugger to grade. say about them for this year though. Yeah, they're a high-grade frying pan team from this season. But next year, I think it's going to be a different story and one we'll certainly be revisiting. I've spoken too much. Ellie May. I think uh, kind of in addition of you saying that they're like a Teflon team and that you can throw anything at them and they get it, they can fix it fairly quickly. Um, Earlier this year, they obviously had their reliability issues and it was... It was either Toto or George, I'm pretty sure it's Toto, said they'd rather have a reliable but slow car. And Christian said back, I'd rather have a fast car and sort out the reliability. And Christian was right, because Red Bull were able to get on top of that reliability very quickly 
was Mercedes struggled for pace throughout the whole season. Yeah. yeah. But if they so, are plagued by reliability in the future and take a little bit longer or it's not as straightforward, Mercedes do have that reliability straight away there. I mean, they didn't have, they had one mechanical DNF and that was in Abu Dhabi. Um, and that was after a bit of damage with, with science. So it's kind of, I, I, I think that there was more to the problem of Mercedes than just not having a fast car. So you can't say that Horner was 100% right there. I think that it's just two very interesting, they're both right and they're both wrong. It's two sides of the same coin. It's simply a yeah. case of whichever one you want to look at, given your situation. If you've put money on heads, you're going to hope that it comes up heads. If you put money on tails, you're going to hope that it comes up tails. And I think for both teams, it came up the side they'd put sort of a wager on. They'd put their hope into. But at the end of the day, Red Bull won their championship, which proves that potentially you want the fast car and fix the reliability issues because a reliability issue is a lot easier to fix over a season than the entire premise of your car, which hasn't paid off. And as we saw with Mercedes, it didn't pay off. They didn't design a race-winning car apart from one race where potentially they got lucky because Red Bull just weren't in the fight for that one. Yeah, and you've got to think... And apart from the start of the year, Red Bull didn't have any more DNFs due to reliability, did they? No. I mean, the the only... if they did, it was probably Perez that happened to anyway. Yeah. But then you've got to think how integral Christian Newey is. Christian Newey? A Christian Newey? A Newey is to that team because as soon as the, some form of aerodynamic went, on that car it was not slow but slow for the red bull standards as well so yeah if it picked up a tiniest bit of damage the car seemed to struggle it became a tricky beast to drive and yeah adrian newey's design kept that car completely on a knife edge but also that knife edge was yards ahead of the rest of the field and I think that's where a key element to it comes in is the fact that, yes, as annoying as it is when you pick up a little bit of damage along the edge of a floor or you bend a strike slightly out of alignment on your rear diffuser and all of a sudden you've got far too much front end compared to rear, the fact is that, yeah, that's what happens when you're pushing the envelope and you look at Red Bull's design team or Red Bull's strategy team. You have two people at the top of their game. I think it would be a, it's not unfair to put Hannah Schmitz and Adrian Newey in the same field when you say they are at the top of their games respectively and yeah credit to both of them where it is due for putting together a car for putting together a season a team that was so effortless in what it achieved this season I think you can only heap praise on it for what it's done in reality they... ignoring the £700,000 overspend they definitely couldn't have done it without either Hannah or Adrian. And I think, wasn't it the last... There you go, Ferrari. Hire those two. Problem solved. Was it uh, Brazil? They didn't have Adrian Newey with them and he always helped them with the setup of their cars and that's where they fell backwards. I was saying as part of the kind of... If you win the championship, you get a uh, certain few things taken off you. You get limited Adrian Newey time just to see, just just take these things off you, just to see what would happen. 
he's a walk see if it's a one-off event or if that's yeah. uh yeah just see if it makes anything or if it is a consistent problem then yeah you don't yeah. Re- you reduce adrian newey time you sort of get um essentially a joker race where you're not allowed to use adrian newey or where you're not allowed to use your hannah schmitz and there you go that's that's your your handicap is you have to utilize Ferrari's version of that <laughs> Well, that I think definitely you, you would can, have been you can phrase it as a different. developmental thing from through Formula One and say so you're using it as a means to promote people from lower positions or to encourage greater diversity coming through to the top by simply saying, give the apprentice a chance. That boy like in the back a, of the garage, give him a go. Like how they make it mandatory that uh, all teams have to have two drives of... Um, a junior driver. Is, yeah, you have to give a junior <laughs> engineer a chance practice. and a junior race strategist a chance. That's exactly what we see. But that's the thing, we're having to think up slightly ludicrous things just to try and justify or pin Red Bull back to a point where they'd be with the field, let alone fighting against them, just to a point where they'd be close. And that is the perfect summation of their their drive this season. So I think that, that quite nicely summates Red Bull's performances, the fact that we're having to think of these slightly silly or outlandish things that would get close to pegging them back to be within the realms of the other top two teams of the paddock and i think it needs neatly onto the idea that you should you could probably create a formulated ranking of it i think through the process of this recording timo's read out some of the average finishing results for some of the drivers and if you have a look on our social media feeds if you have a look on our tiktok timo ellie may calculate some as well but timo read them out off an f1 thing to prove you wrong at points um We've decided to do something similar on those lines and basically between the three of us rate each team and each driver to produce or say it could be 30 different statistics and give them an average between the three of us so we can see roughly sort of what the ranking is based on our own perceptions. So that will be up on our social medias across the feeds. It'll be on our Twitter, it'll be on our Instagram. Haven't quite figured out how I'll be able to get it onto the TikTok. It might be on the background. Make an animated video. graph. I'll make an animated graph of some sort of thing for TikTok. I don't know how to appeal to the TikTok generation. Um, but anyway, that's that, and we'll move on to the Undercut Podcast Awards. Uh, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six categories this year. Uh, the first category is Best Team Radio. Timo, your best team radio from the season. I was struggling, and then I remembered kind of a summation of Ferrari here, much like Ellie May had earlier when we were discussing Ferrari of just its pain in it. My that for team radio is just Ferrari question. Their whole thing from Spa, where it just showed that they had no idea what the heck they were doing and were just really making up as they go along, but not doing so in an inspiring fashion. And that just kind of it just it just sums up Ferrari this year and that whole team radio from Spa with them was just the standout for me there. For all the wrong reasons. We didn't say they had to be for the right reasons, just a simply a standout. Thank God moment. for that. <laughs> Ellie May, who what what was your best radio moment from across the season? Yeah, so I'd I'd say any signs sass on the radio was sort of a close second for me. But my top one was when Bottas at Brazil uh got on the radio and told his engineers to tell Joe when to take overtake Latifi. And I just think that was such a sweet moment. It was nice. It, yeah, it was just a nice, wholesome moment. And again, it, it shed that new light on Bottas and equally showed that he's willing to be a part of the team as well as just a driver for the team, I think, is a, is a, is a key point. I will take your, your close second of Carlos Sainz-Sass. 
and go back to Silverstone. I think this was in the sort of closing stages of the race. We're coming out of a VSC or a safety car. And um, they're talking strategy on the radio as ever at Ferrari. And Carlos Sainz just says to the team, please stop inventing things. And it, as funny as it is because of the slightly broken English and it's just sort of one of those team calls you don't expect to hear, at the same time it is, like Timo hinted at, a sign of the underlying problems at Ferrari is the fact that the team are throwing wild things around at the very last second on the radio because they just don't know what they're doing at points. And yeah, if you're looking for a radio call that summates the season, please stop inventing things is probably up there. It's not encouraging, is it? It really isn't. We'll move on to our best race of the season. Ellie May, I will let you open up with your your choice for best race of the season. Silverstone. Say no if more. Yes, yeah, say no more. It was it was a great race and Carlos Sainz won it. So she's a happy gal. I was. I was very tempted to take Silverstone as well, but I'm gonna be nice and let you have that. Bahrain or Brazil for me, and I'm going to say Brazil because Bahrain leaves a bit of taste in my mouth now because it was just teasing such potential for what could have been a really, really, really good season. And then we got the opposite of that completely, more or less, and it's been one of my least favourite seasons of all of F1 that I've ever watched. And that's not what... You watch Bahrain and then you see... And if you gave me the championship standings after that, after Abu Dhabi, after Brazil... I would not have believed you because it just seemed ridiculous. So for that reason, I have to say Brazil because, again, it was just a very spicy weekend from start to finish. Magnuson Pole alone, I would have taken that as a great weekend, especially at that point in the season. So the fact then that we got, like I was saying earlier, Red Bull, the glit, the, the, the drama there that could be impacting next year. We got uh, Mercedes obviously 1-2 out of, not nowhere, but it's kind of finally they were able to put everything together after several attempts earlier on in the season. It was nice to see that and signs doing well as well and Ferrari not cocking up as much as was expected. They still didn't do brilliantly overall, but it was better than expected. And again, Vettel, some good performance from him as well there. So it had a bit of everything and it's kind of what you want from a Grand Prix. And Jesse, I know you've kind of the reasoning you've said for your Grand Prix, but I'm still bemused by the fact that you've chosen this as the best race of the season. I, okay, not necessarily best race of the season, but certainly my favourite race. Well, that's of the, the category season. best race. <laughs> I made the categories. I can also pick exactly how I want to fit within these categories. Um, I say I made the categories. I think Georgia actually picked them. Um, anyway, Singapore. Um, I just liked it. It had a bit of everything to it. It was a bit of a crazy race, and it was one of those races where it didn't truly feel like it was being the season was being dominated by one driver. Like you said with Bahrain, if you took the results of this race and moved them out of context you would have a fairly interesting looking season on your hands. And I, I don't know, it just had a little bit of everything. It had a little bit of a sparkle to it, perhaps because we haven't been to Singapore for a while. It stood out in that regard as being special. Um, I was tempted to say Japan, which again, we haven't been there for a while, but also it was sort of hampered by the rain. You could only was say... Was that, that mainly because of the Vettel Alonso start finish straight that we didn't even see? Yeah, that in itself was amazing. <laughs> the battle between Charlotte Checo, there was a lot about Japan that was good, but I feel that we only got some of that potentially because of the rain. Singapore, I feel we got just because it would have been that race regardless of the conditions, I feel, to a certain extent. It would have been just a slightly more wild race. And I don't know, I enjoyed it. 
that, that's um, just it. I liked it. I will, I guess, make an honourable mention of Spa just for the how well Max Verstappen got through that. Yeah, that was a pretty as a race. Good. It was pretty dull, though. As a race, it was pretty dull. It didn't take Max long to get through the grid. I think it was impressive. Friend of the podcast, Jacob Phillips, said he enjoyed the atmosphere when he was there in person, but then watching it back, like, oh yeah, no, that wasn't great actually. <laughs> yeah. I imagine Monza was a bit like that. The atmosphere was fantastic, but I haven't actually watched the race back. I don't think I've even seen the highlights of the Monza Grand Prix because I doubt it was brilliant watching. It's not a long video. No, there weren't. Many I can't remember it. So yeah, they are case in point. Atmosphere was I, great, but I do feel like I have to add in a category though. Go on. briefly, which is worst race of the season. Ooh. My two contenders are Mexico and Imola. Straight off the bat there, because both were just they were they were the times where uh, oh we all we're all married to Formula One, but that was a point where you're considering looking at other options. You're never gonna do it, but you're gonna look a little bit there. France. Really? Understandable. Understandable. It was Partly better because... for it was better than France by normal standards, but it wasn't it still was wasn't a yeah. barnstormer of a race, though. We didn't really have much of a battle going on anywhere around the front. We didn't have last year. I think we got lucky because we had Hamilton versus Verstappen. We also had Bottas versus Perez. We had essentially the top four fighting with an interesting strategy. We did have Russell versus Perez, and that was quite fun in France. But aside from that, there wasn't much else to to write home about. It was one of those I races where you... Verstappen just sort of buggered off into the distance. Really, once he Charles did. Leclerc wasn't in the way, and it was a bit dull after that. And once. Um, Russell had gotten Perez it sort of petered out a bit after that as far as I can remember that was near I, the end to be fair for I Russell, don't, so I don't have a of... huge amount of memories of France I remember watching it I know I saw it because I remember nearly being in floods of tears when Charles Leclerc stuck it in the barriers but I I could not tell you a damn thing about what happened in that and I know that I watched it and I know we recorded two podcasts about it a preview and a review but with Vicky Piria no less <laughs> yes but I'm... yeah I don't know worst race of the season I'm... I was tempted I'm to say remember... Miami Oh, that was a shit show, actually. Was, yeah. See, that's how bad Miami was. I couldn't even think of it to remember to say yeah. it as the worst race of the season. But Miami had a Miami decent... for me. Miami yeah. for me. No, it was crap. The whole bloody thing it was a waste of time. Yeah. The podium ceremony, See... especially, was god awful. It was like watching yes. the opening part of like the Oscars or the Golden Globes. It was just hammy. Yes, but at least they're done. meant to be there. <laughs> I remembered us having fond. I remember having fond memories of France. I remember us being like actually quite positive on the podcast about France. We hadn't had the rest of the season by that point. And also that was yeah. quite positive by France's own standards. Plus, I think we were sort of under the illusion it was good because they had a nice bucket hat. And Ted Kravitz well. was fun. Oh yeah, Ted Kravitz did a shoey, didn't he? Well, no, that was Australia he did it. No, he, he was just going shopping. He was going shopping. He went shopping They also had their own little, yeah, shopping section of France. But... I have two. Uh, Austria, the just pain mm. of Carlos Sainz, because that, that is... And it was the last time Charles Leclerc won a race. That was the last... Oh, I hate that as a statistic. <laughs> I hate that. That was a race where I remember just feeling pain afterwards. Like, despite Charles Leclerc's race it made me depressed 
Um, yeah. And your second but, choice. <laughs> but the one I have to go for, Monaco. Eh. I forgive it because Perez was able to win that and that was just fun because it was someone different to Max. Mm. But it was such a shit show. The organisation of it, and I think this is something that's overarching yeah. problem more with the FIA and how they run F1 races in the wet is a major mm. problem. Is the idea we have these wet tyres, but we don't actually use them to go racing on everyone just immediately. As soon as you go out laugh behind the safety car, you then just swap straight to the inters. It's, that's the annoying part. That's not a fault so much of the race as just bad direction from the sporting director, I think, for the sport. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we'll move move, on to to best feeder series moment. We're going to go for you, Jesse, because you've been an absolute bust and still done mine, but it's an absolute corker, so I can't really blame you. F3 in Hungary, purely for those last few laps in, wasn't it the feature race as the circuit's drying Mm -hmm. out and you've got drivers swapping to the softs and absolutely monstering the pace there, sort of 10 seconds seconds after a lap. Yeah, it was was astonishing. And you had people flying through the field just burning through soft as fast as they could just in the final few laps you're like oh this is the craziness that we love f3 for and yeah it was when ellie may has the time to watch feeder series this is what we're going to start her off with like this is why you watch it <laughs> yeah we'll put together like a little a degustation menu for her to enjoy bits of feeder series i think we'll definitely go for bahrain from 2022 for f2 and f3 just to give you a taster mm. of the chaos we'll um, up a bit and then we'll start diving in for get her warmed up and then just sort of absolutely slam home hungry F3. Well, we have got a few months of no F1, so I have I do have time. We recommend going back and catching up on some of the feeder series from this year. Um, oh, Abu Dhabi, no, uh, Saudi Arabia F2 was probably also worth a watch as well. There were some good moments from there. Um, I was trying to think about mine and then I saw that someone put in my section the Screaming Mills podcast, which... To be honest, I'm just going to have to agree. I'm not angry about that. And it means that I don't now have to use my brain because that is a podcast that only we could aspire to be like. We've got aspirations and we know we can achieve things on par with the Screaming Meals podcast. We've just Maybe got to we... try and get hold of Clement Novelak. Yeah, that's, that's what I was literally about to say. We need his wine corner. I'll try and get hold of the boy and get him back in. Moving on from the feeder series, though, we'll go to best overtake of the season. Ellie May, sort of shaky ground with yours. Where are you going? Mine is shaky ground, but I'm unsure what race it is, but I'm pretty sure Danny Rick did a double overtake that I was like, that looked pretty good. Was it when he was on soft at Mexico? That feels like something he would... Yes, yeah, it would have been coming out of turn three, going down to turn four, I think. He did... I think he did, like, Ocon... No, he'd already done Ocon. I think he did, like, Gasly or something and another and another driver in two and one. Yeah, he did. I just cannot remember where... It might have been Mexico, but he definitely did do a really nice, basically, sort of a double pass. I think he got, like, a nice slipstream because he was basically stuck on softs after clip in Sonoda in mm. Mexico and basically said let's just see how far up the order he can get himself to sort of undo his penalty as it were and he flew through the pack and he I definitely recall there being a double overtake there so 
that's a good shout actually it made me think of that one um mine was Seb Vettel on Kevin Magnussen at Cota on the final lap it was a battle that had been raging pretty much since turn nine I think it is as you come onto the long back straight at Cota and sort of he caught up to him there and they basically got into sector three and just knew he had to sort of try and find a way past him eventually starts making a move through the sort of really long turn 14 or was it turn 18 or something whatever it is the really long sort of multi-section right-hander and then the equivalent of like turkey um, turn eight. I always, yeah yeah that's how i always yeah it. america's turkey turn eight and then basically swap sides and somehow finds a way past kevin magnuson and both of them are fighting damned hard because they both know their teams are up against it in the championship and it was yeah, one of those moments that just showed that regardless of what chassis you put Seb in, he's going to be fighting for things and he's going to be fighting for even the smallest of points because he he cares about the sport and he cares about the impression he leaves in the sport. And it was just one of those moments where you go, nah, Seb Vettel, Seb Vettel, that's that's incredible. Um, yeah, it was. it's kind of sad that it, it took Vettel to say that he was retiring before we finally got some glorious Seb Seb battles that, that, yeah. yeah that we know and that we love mm. and it makes you then sort of miss it more yes yeah all the good bits of his season happened after he announced his retirement which is quite sad um timo you've gone for a fairly obvious one for your best overtake but ultimately it is a good overtake best overtake for me has got to be lewis at silverstone we all know which one i'm thinking of it was just, again, Lewis having that extra two-tenths or whatever in the race because of the crowd pushing him on. So it made up for the Mercedes not being the best car in the world at that point. And he drove his heart out. And that that overtake showed that, yeah, this isn't a guy who got beaten in a cruel way and is now just kind of licking his wounds and he doesn't have it anymore. He really still has it. And this really showed that. And again shows that yeah okay you need a great car to win but you don't need you need you need a great driver to actually make that happen as well you need both of those you can't just have one without the other and the stuff that Lewis was able to get out of that car at that point in the season it was pretty special so that overtake was just chef's kiss so we'll move from racing overtakes to qualifying sessions and I'll open this one up and I want to say Kevin Magnussen at Interlagos because I know we've mentioned it previously at points in the podcast already, but there was a brilliant quote from, I can't remember if it was from Kevin or if it was from Gunter, that was, when it rains soup, you've got to have a spoon. And I think Kevin embodied that wholly. And it was just nice to see him so goddamn happy about it because, yeah, just top tier stuff from Kevin Magnussen and you, yeah, can't fault him for that. Beautiful. Yeah, I agree. I think for me that was that would have been my best or favorite overtake, uh, not overtake qualifying, as well. Um, but to do a different one, I think Cota, where Carlos Sainz got it on pole because no one expected it of him, and it just came out. It came as like a nice surprise, mm. like he had sort of been hinting that he was pretty quick that whole sort of weekend. And then he just, and then he got pole like, yeah, and, and what? So what? Yeah. 
What are you going yeah. to do about it? I'm a smooth operator. I've got pole. <laughs> yeah. It was second pole, second pole position of the season because, of course, you got it in Silverstone yeah. as well. So yeah, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, it's maiden one, but it was one that almost came as more of a surprise or more of a shock. So it's definitely a definitely a good pole position there from from the smooth operator. Uh, Timo, your your favorite pole position or your favorite qualifying rather? My best qualifying moment of 2022 would have to come in Hungary just because you stole my Kevin Magnussen idea, but also because Latifi was legitimately on it. He did seem to like Budapest from 2021, carried through in 2022, and he was very close to having an awesome qualifying session there. So it, it Latifi being the GOAT is what carries that through but then as well just for the George Russell poll yes I'm doing a Mercedes thing but at the same time we've been so used already at that stage to having it mainly be Ferrari or Red Bull there wasn't really the variety in that that we were hoping from it this year so that seeing Russell get Mercedes first poll of the year not Hamilton was just a little bit different as well and very nice and unexpected because you just, we just weren't expecting it. <laughs> it was unexpected because it was unexpected. So, despite what then goes and happens in the race, it's a bit like Kevin Magnussen in that respect. In Brazil, you know it's probably not going to translate to the Sunday, but it makes the Saturday and the weekend more exciting. So, that is why Hungary for me, Latifi and Russell, the old Williams boys, making that the best qualifying session of the year for me. And we'll move on and round out with a slightly controversial topic as such um best crash timo i'll let you open this one up my crash of the season for emulating fernando alonso in melbourne 2016 and then taking it up a notch has got to be guan yu joe from silverstone and glad he's obviously all right afterwards and all the rest of it but that went sideways so quickly and just madness and then obviously we have a big delay and we still got a brilliant race after that and it wasn't because of the crash that we got a good race, but it just kind of showed that Silverstone is a classic track, and despite you coming here year after year after year, it will still test you from the word go, and it definitely did there. So it was quite a spectacle, and uh, never seen a crash like it. Yeah, I will say, Joe's crash, impressive as it was, I think for me, if you want something that looks a bit more like a mad stunt, you've got to go for Lance Stroll into Fernando Alonso at Cota, going down the back straight, high speed. And I just still don't quite know what Lance was doing with that move. It's not the first time he's made a strange move like that this season. He did it on um, Latifi in Australia, coming out of turn three, four, something around there in the, like sector one. He made a very strange move on him there. But yeah, he did it again in Cota, but this time with far more spectacular results and of course saw him sort of launch Fernando Alonso sort of into the air on his back wheels doing a wheel stand massive landing somehow the Alpine shrugged that off but the the the, um, Aston Martin was pretty written off by the end of it really it was just all a bit crazy but it looked good on camera I think that's the key thing to remember here which is mad considering all the reliability issues that Alpine and Fernando Alonso have it can get launched into the air and yeeted into a wall. Yes. And it's fine. Or it can have a Lewis Hamilton bounce off of it and yeah. suffer no problems at all. But, ooh, altitude too spicy, and it retires. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a strange little car, that Alpine, but it did its job this season. It got them fourth place in the standings. You can't complain too much. Um, 
Anime, your favourite crash of the season? Uh, it's not a crash as such, but it's when Schumacher and Latifi tag each other in Abu Dhabi and they do their little synchronised spinning. Because... Yeah, we're not going to get that next season. It's going to be a shame. There's going to be any of that nice little sort of ballet style, the two of them pirouetting at the same time. Yeah, it was just... I don't know, it was just... It just so perfectly just... encapsulated what they do. Yeah. And it happened and... at Abu Dhabi where they'd done that the year prior and had season-altering <laughs> results. Yeah. So at least this time it didn't really have that big an impact. You can sort of joke a bit more about it easily than Goat Teefy spanking into the wall at turn 14 in Abu Dhabi. It just seemed like fun. Yeah, I suppose at this point it was it was harmless fun. I think that's what you can enjoy that crash for. Yeah. No one was harmed in the making of that crash. No, nor was anyone's championship. And I think that's a good thing to remember. Yeah. Um, what that does mean, though, is we've reached the end of our big season review. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't find more of me on the internet. I'll nobly go first and promote myself. Uh, you can find me across the internet on social medias as Jesse on Cars, as well as on sort of Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Uh, but if you want print content, you can find me at Classic Car Weekly, where I've written about what festive events you can take your classic car to this week, I think. Yes. Anyway, where can the people find you? I'm actually going to finish this on a fun fact instead. Ooh. We haven't had an Ellie Mae fun but, fact in a while. Exactly. Uh, so Lewis Hamilton and Above, who like finished in the Drivers' Constructors' Championship, they could have got fourth on their own in the Constructors. Damn. Alpine had 173 points, whilst Lewis Hamilton had 240. And then obviously everyone else above him had higher than that. Damn. So as, as a... As a Lewis Hamilton and everyone above them as an individual constructor would have outscored the teams from Alpine and below. Yes. That's a kooky statistic, and I like that. Thank you very much. Team, where can the people find you? You can, as always, find me over on On The Curbs, as well as the Nitro RX podcast. And if you want some written journalism from myself, I write for Is It Fast, Paddock Sorority, and now Paddock Passion. So there's plenty of good stuff from me for all of you out there who are craving that extra little bit because I just know you are. And that's all we've got time for on our big season review and our awards ceremony for the 2022 Formula One season. Um, I've got to go because I've put in a bid on Master Martin's side pod and I need to go and see if it's won. Thank you very much for listening. We'll catch you probably across the Christmas period. I think you two have got some season reviews to come for things like Formula E and all sorts, haven't you? Yeah, me and Timo are holding the fort, so this may go okay, or it will end up with us squabbling like we usually do, so Either way, we'll be back in late January, early February with some uh, 2023 Formula 1 content, I think that's safe to say. Yes. Until such a time. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.